of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Caitlin. Yes, Jamie? I've got a problem, and it needs solving. Uh, okay. I've only <laughs> have, I only have 90 minutes to record a podcast. <laughs> okay, so you mind what's going to be? Whoever hears this, I suppose you'll think it's a confession. I recorded this podcast. Me, mm. Caitlin Durante. I did it for the money and a woman. And I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. <laughs> okay, I like that way better. I like that <laughs> way better. Because what is Walter Neff doing at the beginning of this movie and throughout <laughs> besides recording a true crime podcast? He literally, yes, I wrote down the same thing. I was like, wow. I, I, What's her name? I wrote down, um, who's the, whatever, the serial person. I'm mm. blowing it. I'm <laughs> blowing it this morning. Oh my gosh, I don't remember either. Why? We? I feel like everyone, I can hear her voice. I can hear her cadence. <laughs> it's iconic. Like, I, oh my God, I was very into it when it came out. What it, What was it? Sarah Koenig. Sarah Koenig. Yes. Yes, yes he's Sarah Koeniging out at the beginning of the show. Huh. <laughs> <sighs> Wow. We, well, that was uh, one of our best intros. Perfect. See, this is, and if people are listening right now, this is why we don't record uh, this early in the morning, because this is going to be the, you're going to feel us sort of waking up as the podcast proceeds. We're not like Walter Neff recording in the dead of night with a, with an injury. With a gunshot wound. Yeah. <laughs> gunshot this is, wound. 
It's 10 a.m. I've been up since 7 because I needed to rewatch this movie same, this morning. Same. So I think that we're doing a really good job so far. Uh, welcome to the Bechdel cast. My name's Jamie Loftus. My name is Caitlin Durante, and this is our show where we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens, using the Bechdel test simply as a jumping off point, an inspiration for us to get a conversation going. Yes. Jamie, uh huh. tell me what the Bechdel test is, please. No. Okay. Uh, the Bechdel test has many permutations. It's sometimes called the Bechdel-Wallace test, originally created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechdel. We require that to pass, you have to have two characters of a marginalized gender with names speaking to each other about something other than a man for more than two lines of dialogue. I think this movie passes, Mm. which is funny um, because I went in thinking there's no way there's even a second woman in the movie. Well, guess what? There is exactly one second woman. other woman. (laughs) So egg on my face. There's two women in the movie and they talk about checkers. Yes, they Uh, do. Um, so if that's why you listen to the podcast, I guess you could turn it off now because it does, <laughs> but stick around because we got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. We're covering a film noir today from 1944, 1944, yeah. called Double Indemnity. And we have an amazing returning guest. Let's get her in the mix. We certainly do. She is a media critic. You remember her from our episode on Point Break. It's Anita Sarkeesian. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. Okay, just so everyone knows, I tried to get them to do another surf movie with me so that I only do <laughs> surf movies on the Bechdel mm. cast, uh, mm. and they were not going for it. Caitlin like, just looked at me being like, nobody requests surf movies. We should I don't do- think that's true, so please write in. Mm. and let them know that I'm right. (laughs) I didn't know about this uh, conversation, and I would have made a strong argument for Blue Crush. That movie really gave me some body problems. So... Yeah, I forgot about Blue Crush. Oh, how could you forget about Blue Crush? I've never seen Blue Crush, so I like this would be a great opportunity because I'm like... I want to watch all of them now, so I will. I'll come back. Mm. And apparently, it was formative yes. for a lot of young queers too. There's a whole. I need to. Mm-hmm. I need to get in on this. I remember there was such a frothing culture around Blue Crush because all the girls that I would watch it with were like, "Isn't it amazing that Kate Bosworth has one blue eye and one brown eye?" We were just like all <laughs> lusting after her. We're like, "Wow, her bikini's so low cut." Yeah, there's a whole. There's a whole thing. Yeah, exactly. To be But we're talking about double indemnity. We're talking about a different kind of um, interestingly exploited female character today. It's femme fatale day on the Bechdel cast. It sure is. So, Anita, what is your relationship, history, etc. with this movie with film noir in general um nothing i have no (laughs) history at all uh i i chose it or like i you know kind of agreed to do it because i've been curious about going back and watching older films so i was like why not have an excuse to do it i sort of regret that choice so this is gonna be a great episode um (laughs) but i don't um i don't know i i didn't know anything about this movie going into it i loosely knew that it was like 
kind of quintessential in terms of establishing the femme fatale or film noir-ish kind of vibes. So I was Mm -hmm. curious about that. But I don't have a long history of like, you know, it's not like I've watched a bunch of noirs. I kind of get the sense of them. I find current uh, or more modern films that pull noir themes really interesting. But but Mm -hmm. that makes it like... Every time I watch a movie that's like, this was the thing that changed everything, I always feel a little bit of, we will never be able to know what that feels like because I've seen every iteration since then, or I've seen every like derivative. Mm -hmm. I've seen everything that is like derivative from the original source. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's just, it's so hard sometimes to put yourself in the mind of the viewer at the time and the creation process at the time. Right. I, I'm sure that if I had seen Citizen Kane in whatever, 1941, when it came out, I'd be like, wow, this movie's so cool. Look at how groundbreaking it is. Look at how it changed cinema. But I didn't see it in 1941. I saw it in the mid-2000s, and I hate it. Well, that was your first mistake, not being alive in 1941. <laughs> I do want to cover Citizen Kane someday so I can just talk about how it's a turd, but that's a, that's a different episode. <laughs> Edgelord Caitlin peeking her little head out. <laughs> but I do think, kind of before we get into this a little bit, um, so I just watched Licorice Pizza, which has a v- extremely mm-hmm. racist, uh, a couple of moments of like deep racism, right? Yeah. And I, I was thinking about, I don't have anything really insightful to say about this, but that it can be very hard for modern progressive viewers to go back and watch older films, right? Because you do have to kind of, in order to do that and to appreciate the craft of the time, we have to acknowledge, uh, sit through, deal with, ignore, like whatever it is that you do when you watch older movies, it's just there, right? And you can't unsee what you know. Right, right. And I was thinking about what that means in contemporary films, especially contemporary films that are of a time. So like including pieces that are super racist or sexist in a movie that comes out in 2021 to contextualize the moment that it takes place. Like, right. I I have a lot of thoughts about that. And I I think that there's something interesting about like kind of me ping ponging back and forth in right now and what I'm watching and seeing like, cool, I got to like deal with, you know, you got to deal with the like, all the sexist representations and the like light misogyny that's just like a part of the environment. And then also we still have to, <laughs> you know, right, like right, it's, right. Still be- it's still being justified as relevant or a part of the craft or a part of the art or whatever. Yeah. Right. Cause it's like a period piece, right? Yeah. It's, it's not the only, you know, I'm not like specifically calling out PTA, but just the, you know, like Tarantino and like they all fucking do that, right? Right. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes like period pieces are used as an excuse to like bring that back in a way of like, isn't this funny? And you're like, it's really not. Mm-hmm. But I, I think Femme Fatale is like such an interesting thing. And I, I totally agree with what you guys are saying of it's so difficult to watch a movie and put yourself in the like mindset of an audience member at the time. It's like almost impossible unless you're like really 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 trying to and that's like part of what's hard about this show sometimes yeah but that's the thing is like what audience is watching it as well i think it's another right right piece to that Mm -hmm. absolutely jamie what's your relationship to double indemnity 
Uh, I saw this movie in college. I think that like any person that went through a bad film program, like there was a unit on noir. I saw a bunch of them. I generally do like I I like noir and I really like uh, noir like parody and like comedy. I'm I'm like into the vibe of noir Mm -hmm. and the because the like the characters are so clear and. So I enjoy watching noir. Also, my friend, friend of the show, a uh, guest on our Gili episode, Josh Fadum, <laughs> um, just observed noir vember, uh-huh. which is something he does every year for nobody. But this year I was paying attention. And um, so I, I had noir on the brain anyways. So I was excited to revisit this movie because I feel like this movie is often kind of presented as like the blueprint for a lot of noir tropes and particularly like the femme fatale character. Right. And it was kind of interesting to come back to because by coincidence, I was working on the uh, the Kathy podcast this year and so was going through the history of like American women's rights. And so it was like interesting to have a few things click about like why why the femme fatale trope tends to pop at certain moments. It makes total sense that it would pop during World War II because it's a time where women are taking on men's jobs, quote unquote, and are Mm -hmm. presenting a more active threat to the status quo. And so femme fatales like popping in the 40s and 50s makes total sense. Anytime that there's like a period of time where uh, there's a backlash to a popular feminist movement, you get these characters that are like variations on witches and like evil women luring people with sex. And I don't know, I had had a and I genuinely like movie wise, I hear like Walter Neff is such a doofus. Like he got a boner one time and was ready to just throw his entire <laughs> life away, which is kind of funny. But I'm excited to talk about this movie. I, I genuinely uh, enjoyed watching it. And Barbara Stanwyck is such a such an icon. And she's wearing oh. such a such a bizarre wig. It's very distracting. The bangs on the, her bangs are oh, like out of like, control. They're like hard. They look like you could like knock on them. <laughs> like, <laughs> They're like a perfect cylinder just resting atop her forehead. I don't understand how you accomplish that. Unbelievable. But yeah, I, I, I generally, I mean, there's misogynist tropes abound in this genre, but I think it like in context, it's, it's pretty interesting and the movies are fun to watch. Yeah. I too saw this movie in college at least a couple times and then also in grad school where I did get a master's degree in screenwriting from Boston University. I hate to mention it, but... uh, (laughs) Wait, they made you watch it again? Yeah, I mean, because I took like enough like film theory or film history classes that touched on film noir and this Mm -hmm. is kind of the one of those like quintessential film noir movies it's cited as having set the standard for film noir so you know it's kind of one of the ones to study if you're developing the curriculum for a very standard boring film class uh, because Mm -hmm. they always show the same damn movies over and over again I've seen it several times in school and this is like I feel like the one that they show 
in school. Yes. Yeah. Which is also why I've seen Citizen Kane 800 times. <laughs> right. And I hate it more and more every time I see it. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll stop bringing up Citizen Kane, maybe. But yeah, so I've seen this movie a number of times, usually, and I probably like maybe I, I saw it once just of my own volition before I saw it for a class because I was like, oh, yeah, this is one of those like famous movies that's in all the textbooks. I have to see it so I can, you know, be smart and understand references. Um, so you could go to party. <laughs> right. Sometimes I just watch things so I can comfortably attend a party. Same, same. Yeah. Um, I get it. Yeah. But uh, I don't, I don't hate the movie. I like the snappy dialogue, you know. The aesthetic is fun. Yeah, I like, I generally like film noir. I like neo-noir, especially, but. Well, who framed Roger Rabbit, baby? I mean, come on. The noir golden standard. <laughs> I think I'm serious too. I think I'm serious. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, we we covered that movie a while back on the Matreon. So sure uh, if you haven't heard it, listeners, go check it out. But anyway, uh, should I do the recap and then we'll discuss? Let's do it. Okay. Actually, let's take a quick break first, and then we will be right back. <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. 
Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. And we're back. So, double indemnity. We meet Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray. He is an insurance salesman who stumbles into his office and starts recording a podcast, basically. He starts recording a confession to Mr. Keyes, who we will later learn is a colleague of Walter Neff's. He confesses that he murdered someone named Dietrichson. He did it for the money and a woman, but he didn't get either. He mentions a double indemnity, and we're like, wow, that's the name of the movie. I was like, I hope he defines that in dialogue at some point, and then he does, which I genuinely needed. So thank you, Walter. (laughs) Yes. And then he starts to tell the story about how all of this transpired. And then we flash back to Walter paying Mr. Dietrichson a visit at his Los Angeles home to talk about his expired car insurance policy. Mr. Dietrichson is not home, but his wife, his wife, his wife, Mrs. Dietrichson, a.k.a. Phyllis, played by Barbara Stanwyck, is home. She comes out all sexy and not fully clothed. She's got like a towel draped on her. Yeah, they are, They really need to signal to you what's going on right away. I, I did like that they like, just like old timey ways of objectifying a woman are funny where he kept being like her anklet. And you're like, yeah, you're a pervert. Stop talking about her anklet. In that moment, too, when he first meets her and she was sunbathing, he says, I hope there aren't any pigeons. Like, you're just right. these like, lines uh-huh. that I was like, what the fuck is this comedy? Like, I, yeah, I was like this. I would almost rather someone. I mean, I would rather uh, Walter Neff never speak to me. But if he had to, <laughs> I, I just that roundabout. Cre- it's just creepy. He's like, oh, I hope there's no pigeons. Just, your- just like, I hope birds aren't shitting on you. Is that what? i I guess so and then right right after the housekeeper says like the living room is where they keep the liquor locked up which is also a weird thing and he says that's all right i always carry my own keys like some of the dialogue in this i kept being like what the fuck (laughs) i don't even understand it it's another i'm i'm adjusting the name of this test i need to figure it out but it is an example of if the person, if the actor saying that line wasn't extremely conventionally hot, you'd be like, this guy is weird. Why is he acting like this? (laughs) Yes, yes. I think part of it is like the writer's attempt to have like really quippy, clever dialogue in a way that might have made more sense to like 1940s audiences. But, you know, many decades later, we're like, what are you talking about? I think it's a combination of that and a lot of the dialogue has to be euphemism to get past the haze like code. skirt the restrictions of the production code right so i i mean i like it i think it's it's just so bizarre to hear characters talk like that to each other and um feel like it's just another day another day <laughs> right. talking like a weirdo uh-huh yeah so Phyllis Dietrichson agrees to chat with Walter Neff, and uh, he spends that entire conversation hitting on her in a very 1940s way. And then she asks if he handles accident insurance, which he does. And she tells him to come back at a different time when her husband will be home. 
Then we see Walter at his office. We meet Keyes, who is Walter Neff's colleague. His whole thing is that he's a skeptic and he can always sniff out a fraudulent insurance claim. Because he feels it right here. And he like basically like points to his like torso it was i was like what are you doing it's like is this some weird dick thing like it was very and i was like oh your heart like your heart and your gut it was so (laughs) it's like okay buddy yeah he keeps referring to the little man who lives inside him oh that yes that was the thing yeah you're like is this like an is this a euphemism what's happening here i don't understand he's like i always know when someone's lying to me i can feel it in my dick (laughs) i can feel it when my dick starts to throb, that's when you know someone's not telling the truth. <laughs> I really like that moment with him. I mean, that that who, who is that character? I, I don't think I've ever seen that character actor before. Um, Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, apparently he was quite famous back in the day, but uh, don't really know him. Oh, no. Oh, he he named people during the Red Scare. Oh, oh you little asshole. Boo. Boo. Fuck him. He named Dalton Trumbo. Wow. wow. Okay, this bitch. Okay. So... All right. Fuck you and your <laughs> little man. I this Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, go fuck yourself. All oh, your dick's throbbing and then you out. Good-hearted communists. Jesus. Um, okay. Keys, the character. Yes. I really enjoyed that scene where kind of like apropos of nothing, he just is like, yeah, I almost got married once. Didn't work out though. Like he just starts oh going gosh. off about how he's never been loved in his life and that's why he's so good at insurance. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Also, the reasons he lists for like not going through with that marriage are <laughs> so wild. And again, yeah. you know, the standards of the time were very different, but he's like, she, I found out that she used to dye her hair or that she's been dyeing her hair since she was 16. And also... She was married once before. And then he also like oh, no. makes a reference to how there's like mental illness in her family. So he's like, and then and then Walter's like, yeah, I get it. She was a tramp. Everyone in her family is a tramp, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, yikes. Your standards are very mean. <laughs> <sighs> this guy was so dirty at the House of Un-American Activities Committee. What a <sighs> what a piece of shit. What an asshole. He thought, and again, of the time, I'm sure he's like, oh, this is... Ugh, we don't have time to talk about this today. I'm dis- disappointed, Edward. Mm, also, yeah. RIP, he died like 500 years ago. F- fun fact, uh, sometime next year, I'll be releasing a video series, and one of the episodes is about the Hollywood Blacklist. So, Ooh, no way. Tune into that whenever the fuck that appears. Yeah, keep your, wow. keep your eyes peeled, listeners. Please fillet a fish our boy, Edward, because he fucked up. He <laughs> fucked up big time. All right, so... We, we've met Keyes. Then Walter Neff goes back to Phyllis Dietrichson, who tells him that she wants to take out an accident insurance policy on her husband, who works a dangerous job in the oil fields. Uh, but she doesn't want her husband to know about it. And Walter automatically assumes that it's because she's trying to find a way to get her husband killed so that she can collect on the insurance money. Mm-hmm. But she's like, no, I, I decay what? what you're talking about. But even so, he storms out. But then he's like, oh, wait a minute, though. She's so hot. I mean, she wears an anklet. She wears an anklet. Like, I mean, uh, he brings it up like four or five times. He's it's like, really weird. He's like, yeah, the way the anklet was cutting into your leg. I'm like, no. 
pass. Okay, so he comes back and like, anyways, I'm just using this as a cue to talk about the like the dialogue banter, right? That's very mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. the way that people talk. Right. And I haven't watched a lot of movies from the 40s, but it is very much the sort of stereotype that I think we think of when we think about like older films. Sure. Mm-hmm. I found it really hard to watch. You know, and you both expressed that like you enjoyed it and like thought it was kind of a fun thing. And for me, it, like it, it got really exhausting after a while. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, like I, it was just too. I was like, can y'all just fucking like? And, and again, film history like has changed so much in terms of what we expect of actors and storytelling and all of that. But I was just getting really like, okay, enough already with the performativeness of this conversation, right? It definitely gave me whiplash after a while because there's that scene where he's like, suppose I am speeding and she's like, well, suppose I give you a ticket and suppose you leave me off with a warning and suppose it doesn't take and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, ugh. See, that just makes me laugh where they're like flirting and you're like, this this is, I barely recognize this as the English language. Like, what are you guys talking about? And then at the end, they're like, we have a crush on each other. I'm like, from based off of that? (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So it also reminds me, and like, okay, Joss Whedon's a piece of shit, so acknowledging that before I go into this, but it reminds me of how like Buffy and some of the work that he did in the 90s and 2000s sort of popularized that kind of like, and and I'd say Gilmore yeah. Girls too, kind of popularized mm, that sure. like, it, it feels like a, a remnant of that time. Yeah. But, but kind of normal, like that I didn't have a problem with. <laughs> like I liked... I didn't like Gilmore Girls, but so it feels a little bit like that. Um, right. I'm just like, it's not like we don't do that anymore, but it, but it's, it's modernized in a way that's like our jokes and our communication and our, you know, like sort of hyper communication of, of the moment. But man, I just, I was really, yeah. by the end of it, I was like, can you just stop? <laughs> talking right. I'm a sucker for people talking real fast and so anytime someone's talking real fast I'm like oh yeah okay cool what huh, huh? I'm like I, <laughs> but that's I also get... YouTube life right like the the joke about YouTubers is that they all talk super fast because we used to have time constraints so we're trying to like shove everything in uh-huh. so I don't I think it's just interesting how like that kind of maybe like ebbed and flowed a little bit in terms of the way that what we accept as like witty dialogue and speed of of talking um, changes or our perception of it in the past changes too, right? And it's all like the mid-Atlantic mm-hmm. kind of fake fucking accents and shit where you're like, right. this is not real. I mean, there's also like, there's like movie dialogue that you like read it on the page or you hear it and you're like, this is dialogue versus something that feels more realistic and organic and conversational which like also can be very well written but I don't know I I, I'm kind of a sucker for dialogue that no one would actually say in real life because it's like very clearly written it's like too clever and too quick like Aaron Sorkin like the West Wing kind of oh I I know I know (laughs) that's the flavor I don't like but I'm saying it's that kind of thing where you're like this isn't real but also like you kind like a lot of people really vibe with it right sure yeah 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 I feel yeah there's probably like a fast talking genre or like piece of work for every like generation that it's like either yeah you're into it or you're not or Right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I I do also want to add that if I literally in my notes I I wrote if he says baby one more time. <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> like I here's the thing is Walter Neff Fred McMurray like is just 
so unlikable in every conceivable way. There's nothing <laughs> I'm about glad him. I you feel that way because I was oh. like, I'm not interested in this man at all. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah, not for me. I think I would have liked the movie more if I gave any fucks at all about this guy. But he just seemed so unlikable and so uninteresting and such a piece of shit in every way that, like, I don't feel bad that he's being manipulated. I don't feel bad that he is like, no, he like, he's like, I want you to fail and I want you to get like, right. You know, whatever. And so I think that that, I don't think as an audience member, we're supposed to feel that way about him. No, I think the movie, cause he was prior to this, like a rom-com star and he almost turned down the role because he's like, this role is going to tarnish my reputation as a like an, an America's sweetheart, you know, like rom-com guy. But then he, he went for it anyway. But yeah, I think he he as an actor, people liked him and we are meant to be endeared to him. But yeah, again, by like <laughs> my standards today, I'm just like, ew, quit calling her baby 800 times. Yeah, I, I didn't really... I don't know what it was. And I'm I'm like, maybe this is just me being annoying. But I'm like, if maybe if there was a different actor in that role. But but the other thing is with noir characters in general, I guess I don't understand from a writing perspective why you wouldn't give the audience more information about who Walter Neff is or like what because it just seems like he's living this like stakesless life. Like right. he's a single guy. We don't know anything about his family. He seems like he's financially comfortable enough, but we don't really know anything about him. And so it's hard to like, I feel like if you just, if they just added one or two details of like, and he has a sick cat or like just something (laughs) to like endear you to him or just to give information, but he's just like a guy. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was like, well, I don't really care what happens to this guy. He's just some guy. When in the history of film noir did it become kind of attached to the sort of hard-boiled detective? Mm. Because that... So this movie is this, like, femme fatale manipulating this guy, right? Is is kind of Mm -hmm. the vibes that are happening. But in my mind, being very uneducated in this space, uh, I'm like, well, shouldn't he be a little more hard-boiled and a little more, like, gruff? Right. I think that ordinarily that is the case of like, there's more gruffness. You'll have a little bit more information about the character, which is kind of just like Walter's whole whole character kind of strikes me as a little bizarre because I'm just like, I feel like I don't know who this person is. Mm -hmm. So I can't even like from a like, oh, I feel bad for this guy. Like, I don't really feel bad for him because he seems to know exactly what's going on outside of the fact that she is manipulated. Like, that's the only thing he doesn't know. But everything else, there's so many plot developments in this murder plot that are, like, his idea. So I'm like, yeah, he's going to get what's coming to him. Like, it's not like she's like, oh, we should do this or we should do this, which she does sometimes. She's obviously an active participant in this plot. But his whole thing where they're like, oh, no, we actually have to throw your husband off a train (laughs) and then we'll get twice the money. And I was like, okay, so he's just, like, a full-on... Which collusion, like, goofus, and I don't care what happens to him. And I don't think that they, and you already said this, Jamie, but they don't do a good enough job of showing that they fucking care about each other. And I know that there's the <laughs> bit there's the bit at the end. Well, we're not there yet. We'll deal with it when right. whatever. But, <laughs> but like, we're, we're not supposed to think that she really cares that much about him, right? We're supposed to, like, she's, she's manipulating right. him, and she's, like, going along with it, and he's in love with her. But, like... 
they don't do anything to really build that relationship or the emotional stakes of it in any way. And so but he calls her baby. So that's how we know that he loves her <laughs> question mark. There's those long montages. Yeah. Like, oh, there's all these opportunities and I get like story logic. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But also I wouldn't have been bothered as an audience member <laughs> when there's just like, they'll have one conversation and then there'll be a montage where he's like, and then I didn't see her for two weeks and I kind of just went back to what I was doing. And I was like, well, that's boring. That doesn't, right. <laughs> I don't really care. Ugh, yeah. There's a whole conversation to be had about like his motive or lack thereof. It's wild. His, I think his motive is that he's horny. Like, yeah, I think seriously. That's it. Yeah. Which I mean, I've had a horny motive in my day, but not sure. You know, not to this extent. Doesn't drive you to murder. And I've got a personality, unlike Walter. <laughs> so it's interesting when I have a horny motive. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So wait, where did we leave off? Um, oh, I like when he goes bowling on the way home. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that is that is again like just a creepy bizarre thing to do like i think i'll i gotta blow some steam out hey that's character development <laughs> I, yeah he, he likes bowling. bowling alone i also wondered if that was a, a euphemism for something like if that was understood that if you know if you go bowling after work it's really like did he go to a bar and get jerking like drunk? i don't know you have a yeah. beer and and uh and go bowling alone yeah that's yeah, you get drunk at your house and jerk off. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so he's kind of having conflicting thoughts because he's like, I don't want to, you know, be involved with her, but she's so hot, so I don't know. And then she pays him a visit and basically confirms that his suspicions were correct about her wanting to have her husband killed. And she reveals that it's because her husband is abusive toward her. Mm -hmm. Walter and Phyllis kiss then Walter is like, you know, you probably won't get away with this, but with my help and know-how as an insurance guy, maybe you will get away with it. So then they start to scheme. First, they need to trick Mr. Dietrichson into signing the policy and they need a witness, which ends up being Dietrichson's daughter from his first marriage, Lola. So he signs the policy then Walter's like, oh, by the way, if we do a double indemnity, mm -hmm. oh. which is when... And then we go, woohoo, <laughs> <Yeah>. the title. <laughs> which is when the insurance pays out double on certain accidents. For example, if someone is killed on a train, in which case for this policy, they would stand to make $100,000 in the event of Mr. Dietrichson's death. So they're like, let's cash in on that. Which is like a bajillion dollars in 1944 money. Right. Yes. So they arrange for Mr. Dietrichson to take a train on his upcoming trip to Palo Alto. But before that happens, Mr. Dietrichson falls and breaks his leg and calls off the trip. So Phyllis is freaking out, but Walter's like, it's cool. We just got to be patient. Mm. And then also Walter and Phyllis are having an affair throughout this whole thing. And he keeps calling her baby and it's gross. Yeah, that's how you know that they're in love because they kiss two times and he calls her baby one million times. <laughs> yes. And that's that's love. That's how love works. Yes. So Walter tries to take his mind off the whole thing. A week or so passes and then one day he gets a call from Phyllis saying that her husband is taking the train that night. So this is their chance. Another thing that just I thought was like bizarre and fun when I was reading about the just the way that this movie was written because Raymond Chandler was a co-writer on this mm -hmm. was that he like I guess he spent a lot of time in L.A. 
trying to like get a feel for but like this this movie a lot of the moments feel like that SNL sketch where they can't stop talking about traffic and intersections because there's so many times where the characters are so specific about like what street in LA they're going to to yeah. like go roller skating or it's like yeah I'm going to Formosa and Santa Monica blah, 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 blah. and like, her house is on Los Feliz Boulevard I was like well, this is not that's not what that looks like. Right. <laughs> it's like, I was like, did it look like that? I don't know. But yeah, yeah. it is very like, this is LA, but it doesn't like, I, I wouldn't put it in an LA category of like, if you want to watch movies about LA, because it didn't feel like LA in any way, other than the names of streets. I just thought it was right. like funny that they like felt that it almost felt like a self-conscious reflex to be like, we're definitely here. And we know the names of the streets too. <laughs> right. Okay. So that night... Walter does a bunch of things to establish his alibi. Then Walter kills Mr. Dietrichson as Phyllis drives him to the train station. And then Walter gets on the train pretending to be Mr. Dietrichson and jumps off the train and fakes the accident. And then they put Mr. Dietrichson's dead body on the tracks. And it seems like everything went according to plan, but Walter can't help but feel something's wrong or that, like, you know, he's going to be found out or something. Mm -hmm. In the days that follow, the police find Mr. Dietrichson's body. They rule it an accidental death. But then Walter's boss, whose name is Edward Norton, by the way. um, (laughs) (laughs) I also was like, oh. He's pissed that the company is going to have to pay out all the money on Dietrichson's policy. And he's certain the death was not an accident. He thinks it was a suicide. Mm. Uh, So he calls in Phyllis, who says, like, that's ridiculous. My husband didn't die by suicide. And Keyes, who, again, is a skeptic, believes that the death was an accident at first. So it looks like Walter and Phyllis are going to get the $100,000 payout. But then Keyes is like, wait a minute. If Mr. Dietrichson knew he had accident insurance, why didn't he do anything when he broke his leg? So then Keyes gets to thinking the whole thing was a setup. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Phyllis and Walter are freaking out. The whole situation is tearing their relationship apart. Then the daughter, Lola, pays Walter a visit and tells him that she suspects Phyllis murdered her mother several years back. I like Lola. She's a smart (laughs) cookie. People gotta take Lola more seriously. Oh my god, the amount that she gets gaslit by Walter in this movie, and then he starts dating her, basically, to distract her. I know! It's really gross. Is it ever stated how old she is? I feel like it's heavily applied that she is a teenager. Like, she's in school she's going roller skating she needs permission from her dad to go places i was really curious about this so i found the screenplay that was written in the 40s to see if it said and it does say how old she is she is 19 according to the screenplay that's convenient well right (laughs) i guess that is i love in creepy movies where they're like Hi, I'm 18. So this creepy thing that's about to happen is totally legal. <laughs> like, right. And then she fuck. turns to the camera. She's like, I'm 18 recently. And like, you're just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. my God. Um, that is interesting that, that they felt the need to specify. And by interesting, I mean, 
weird <sighs> right yeah so either way he i mean whatever there's i mean it's still creepy because they start dating yeah. and he's 35 and she's 19 and and it's under false pretenses like there's so right. much about it and, and there's this whole other boyfriend too zacchetti yes. right is in the is in the works here who's not looking particularly 19 years old to me <laughs> and also speaking of like male toxic behaviors when we meet zacchetti he is just like, who's this guy? You can't, what, you're with me. You can't be with this guy. He can't know about me. I like, and it was just like really aggressive. And she's like, no, no, baby, I love you. And you're like, what I know. the fuck is <sighs> happening? Just, like, you just worry for this poor girl. And she's been through so much. Yeah. And like the, it did make me laugh when the Zacchetti guy was like, I don't have friends. I'm like, well, <laughs> no shit. We can see dude. why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a little abrasive. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, that when he starts dating her, I was like, this can't be happening. And like, we've had age gap conversations uh, on yes. the show before. I don't think we need to get into it today. But like this one, there's a pretty obvious uh, no thank you. Right, right. So Lola thinks that Phyllis killed her father now, too. So Walter is like gaslighting her and distracting her so that she like doesn't tell anyone else about it. Keys, meanwhile, is piecing things together more and more. Basically, he has the whole crime figured out, except for who pulled it off. Mm -hmm. He doesn't yet know that it was Walter. And because Keys is, like, getting so close to the truth, Walter wants to distance himself from Phyllis, especially because he also continues to see Lola, and especially because he finds out that Phyllis has been having an affair with Lola's former boyfriend Nino Zacchetti so he does have a friend he he, right so then Walter goes to confront Phyllis she shoots him but he doesn't die right away and he gets the gun and shoots her and kills her and then he goes to his office and starts the confession that we saw him recording at the beginning except Keys comes in and overhears so Walter tries to leave. He wants to escape across the border, but he dies from his gunshot wound before he can even get out of the building. And that's how the movie ends. So let's take a quick break and then we will come back to discuss. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. 
Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. And we're back. Okay, can we talk about them fatales just for a minute oh yeah yes please so i dragged caitlin out to watch batman returns the best movie that's ever been made recently (laughs) and when i left the movie i was thinking about how my feminist analysis has become much more nuanced and more open to things like catwoman Mm -hmm. um whereas i like 10 years ago i would have been like this sexist piece of shit right (laughs) um so i was thinking about this with femme fatales because like on the surface, and maybe not the surface, but this is kind of what I wanted to chat with you about, is like they seem incredibly sexist representations, right? And Jamie, you started us talking about like films and and like narrative media often bring out these anxieties that are coming at, around at the times that they're they're being created. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like it's exhausting to be like this manipulative woman who's just trying to get money and kill her husband. And like a lot of femme fatales is that kind of like women are sneaky and duplicitous and they use their sexual wiles to like get men to do things for them. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Is there like in your minds, is there any nuance to this? Is there any way in which that is like salvageable as not fucked up? I think that it's like, it depends. I mean, I don't I don't have like a, I, I don't know how you feel, Caitlin, but I don't have like a hard answer to that. I think that mm-hmm. the more context I had for why these characters were so popular when they were so popular um, kind of clarified how I felt about it, because I do think it's like ultimately it is a I think it's like the kind of misogynist trope that is easily reclaimable but was not intended to be reclaimable. It's like very much a clear like the most heterosexual white dudes in the world are writing this at a time where women were, I guess, unusually able to access money and capital and power during World War II. And so I feel like it's it's just like calcifying that anxiety and selling it back to men who are feeling the same way. I do think that there is an angle to reclaim the femme fatale that has been kind of reclaimed in some neo-noir movies because and I think like I didn't remember this particular detail about this movie but the fact that Phyllis you know they include the detail that Phyllis is being abused by her husband and so I feel like there's an in right there for like but is that true well we gotta get get revenge like but that's the thing is she's so manipulative that why would you believe that that's true I had that thought too where I was like is that part of because one of, so in addition to like 
using her sexual wiles and you know her feminine wiles and her sexuality and exploiting that to mm. deceive and seduce men the femme fatale archetype also is just like flat out lying and using deceit to get what she wants and i it did occur to me like is that the case like when she reveals that her husband is abusive right is that actually true which very well could be the case but because we don't see it on screen, we don't see the abuse, it does make I you wonder, that, like, is that part of her deceit? We don't really know for sure. Right. I mean, I guess that I believed it. Maybe I'm a Walter, too. But I believed it because you saw all of the other behaviors that she was describing in that conversation. You did see him. Like, he was drinking a lot during the day. He was dismissive of her. He was mm-hmm. belligerent towards her. He was dismissive of his daughter. And so because... That was sort of where I was going, where I was like, well, you, it seems like, you know, it wasn't like she was like, he's this awful piece of shit. And then you met this very sweet husband who was very in love with her. Like, right. It did seem like he was, I mean, didn't deserve to be thrown off a train, maybe, but, but I, I don't know. That was where I saw the end for this was um, buying into the story of this woman who is unhappy with her wife getting revenge, which of course, like, changes when you find out that she also killed his wife. Which is so that's where for me it's like it kind of falls apart where it's like this witchy stereotype where you have no like why 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 does she start killing people what is the motivation what does she get out of it who is she like what is her background and all of these things I feel like would make her a much more accessible character but it feels like that information is withheld from you by the writers intentionally so you're just like this woman is evil in a in a vacuum Mm -hmm. we don't trust her. And she's using sexuality to get what she wants. I don't know. I'm very conflicted about it. Um, Same. Yeah. Like it's, I do, I do understand why the femme fatale trope has been reclaimed and why it hasn't like disappeared because it's also like, I feel like in, in the 1940s, this is like a kind of an unusual role where it's an active female character right that she is involved like so deeply involved in the plot and she moves things forward everything is her idea for the most part and it's not like there were a lot of movies at this time where you could just you could see a woman do anything except be mommy or wife right yeah the femme fatale character by nature of the narrative that's being told usually means that that character has way more agency than a lot of female characters that we've seen in like cinema or literature before or since like right and then you could make the argument that it's representation on screen of like a sexually liberated woman and a woman that has sexual autonomy over her own of course it is evil to be sexually liberated but and that's that's always where I diverged from a lot of the feminist analysis of this stuff because I was like, but is it right? Like if she's evil and manipulative and we're supposed to think of her like as a bad, you know, like as a bad person and because women are evil, just because she has like, is in tune with her sexuality. I don't think that that's a pro for us as a movement, right. As like feminisms, you know, in general. But I think that there has been, a push in feminist film theory specifically to try and 
kind of wedge in this like sort of positive angle on some of these films that I just don't think works. Like I don't think that analysis really right because when things that we are hoping to see such as like women having autonomy over their own sexuality when that is being vilified right obviously that's not it's not a plus for us (laughs) no I definitely don't think it's like a movement pushing trope at all I just understand why people I feel like it almost maybe I'm off here but I feel like it, it kind of the impulse to reclaim a sexually liberated woman who's clearly enjoying being evil, it like almost scratches the same itch of reclaiming queer coded Disney villains where you're like, okay, this was done with like not a kind intention to the community. Like this mm-hmm. is like, it's clearly vilifying this character, but they're having so much fun and it like, they're so active that and and also, like, I feel like it's very important that it's like, and this was the most you could get at this time. I think that that has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, 100%. Whereas, like, there just weren't options. Yeah. I want to just reiterate and agree with you on that of, like, marginalized folks have been desperate for representation at all, and we take the scraps we can get, yeah, right? right? And we and we left read, <laughs> and we queer code, and we do all kinds of things to feel seen and and. Uh, recognized in a medium in entertainment in general um so yes but also (laughs) like but also it's a problem um related to this is i think there's also a, a the other piece of this is around complexity and allowing marginalized characters to be evil or to be messy or to be complicated right because historically we don't we don't really have that, right? That you, like queer mm-hmm. folks are always villainized and black folks always die. And, you know, like we have all these tropes that don't come out of nothing, that there is something to be said about the fact that like, yes, it's kind of cool to be able to see to, to see women in a character that is more complex than the housewife or the love interest, mm-hmm. but it's still detrimental, right? And so holding those two truths in some way I think is what makes these conversations so rich and and interesting yeah right I totally agree yeah because this character could have been made to be more complicated in a way that we as the audience could have conflicting feelings about like yes I understand her motive for wanting to get rid of her husband and I see where she's coming from like I would identify with that also but uh, you mm-hmm. know murder also isn't good so I don't know but the movie and and many of these movies just paint the femme fatale character in these very broad strokes of like well no her her motivations aren't complicated her backstory isn't complicated she wants to steal she wants to cheat she wants to right she's evil for the sake of being evil and to me it comes back to intent as far as like the people who were writing these characters because you know the femme fatale character in film noir specifically because this archetype has existed in literature for centuries the bible (laughs) yeah right right but for film noir specifically, it, like you said, Jamie, it was in response to like men's anxieties over, you know, empowered women and sexually liberated women, like the flappers of the 20s and how men felt threatened by that. Women be voting now. Right. And because in a patriarchal structure that is designed to disempower women in all capacities of their life, including their sexuality, 
a sexually empowered woman with agency and autonomy is going to be a threat to a lot of individual men and a threat to the larger structure. So because because that's the reason that femme fatales were written that way in these like broad strokes of like they're evil because women are scary and I'm, I feel threatened by them. Right. Right. And also contextually too. remember the early, like the turn of the century was like, there was a huge, like one, there was the fight for women's right to vote, which obviously complicated. And I don't want to erase the racism and everything around that. Um, Mm -hmm. But also there was a huge, like huge battle for birth control and like reproductive rights was happening mm-hmm. at the time. And there was a huge attempt to squash it. It's, I mean, it's so exactly what's happening right now. It's like nothing has changed, but <sighs> right. you had around that time, um, well, the, the postmaster guy, the guy that is really famous guy in the early 1900s who decided to make it illegal to mail any, anything in the mail that is like sexual in nature. So like not even sex toys or birth control, but also like love letters and photos and all of that oh kind my of God. stuff. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so there is a whole like through legal means, a pushback against the rising tide of women's sexuality and sexual ownership and, you know, rights to birth control and all of that that's happening. So that is also informing some of what I think we're seeing in the femme fatale as well. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really interesting. I didn't, I wasn't, a, that is such a fucked up thing to do. Holy shit. It is in another one of the episodes coming out of my show. Really? Oh, I'm <laughs> And I'm like, what is this guy's fucking name? I'm totally Ooh, blanking on it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Jamie, you started to touch on something as far as like Walter's character goes and how like his motive is so flimsy. And yeah. to me, it like... He... I'm saying that that was like written intentionally, which I also find confusing. Maybe in an effort to like just lean into the idea that, oh, women are so scary and beware of any woman who mm-hmm. is sexually liberated because she's going to get you and she's going to kill you. I wonder right. if Walter's character was written the way that it was to just further emphasize that because, again, he doesn't seem to have much of a motive to commit murder. Mm-hmm. It just seems that he's kind of like under the spell of this woman and her quote feminine wiles yeah. where, you know, it's just like this idea that don't be a weak man. Weak men are tempted by these temptresses and you'll succumb to the temptation. Right. Which like, yeah, furthers the argument that she's literally like a variation on a witch. Right. And like has... <laughs> Her anklet has him like doing <laughs> things he wouldn't normally do. I was also reading that they, I don't know, just a few things were done in this movie intentionally that I guess I just assumed were not done intentionally, including her bad wig. They're like, we chose a bad, Billy Wilder said that they chose a bad wig on purpose to underscore what a sleazy phony she was. Oh and my. Like, I know. It's like measures were taken to really make you hate Phyllis which I think is fun because in 2021 I watch it and I don't I don't hate her and I wonder how if there were women in the audience at this movie because women have always been the majority moviegoers Mm. throughout history and I wonder if there were women in the audience at this movie that were like good for her you know (laughs) right right (laughs) you know but yeah Walter I mean I feel like it is kind of 
inherent to the noir genre in a way that's kind of frustrating. And I feel like some neo-noirs have course corrected this because it doesn't need to be this way. But like all the characters are kind of mysterious or that's what you're told. They're like, oh, everyone's kind of mysterious. You don't know what's going on with anybody. You can't trust anybody. But then what you lose there is like you don't know anything about anybody. So it's really hard to get attached to any particular character because you're like, well, I guess we'll see what happens, but I don't know like what this person's deal is. I would have loved to understand what drove Phyllis to kill his his wife. Right. I I like I that is like such an important piece of context that would have drawn me into that character's story so much more. But they're just like, well, she's evil, so of course she would do this. Yeah, I I'm interested in so like what we've been saying is that neither of them have very good character development, right? At least to the standards mm-hmm. that we would expect of today. Sure. And I think that there is such a reliance on stereotypes of the time. So like this guy, Neff, right? The actor who plays him, uh, Fred McMurray, McMurray, like we're like, ew, you're fucking awful and terrible and I hate you. But he's probably coming in with all of this like goodwill from the audience that makes them like him more than we have any context for. Right. 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 So sure. I, and I know we've covered this, but I'm just thinking about the fact that like, there's no character development in this whole fucking movie at all for anybody. Right. Like nobody really, <laughs> yeah. you know, you don't really get their motivations. You only get them because of the plot, right? Like the like sure. moment to moment plot of it all. And, and, mm-hmm. and so what are we bringing as the audience to attach to that? Also, I say this as someone who's like obsessed with character development. And if you don't fucking have it in your movie, I'm just like, get the fuck out of here. Cause like, <laughs> and I do this all the time. Is and very, it's very important. I'm like, I don't understand why these people love each other. I have no, you did not give me a reason for it. Right. And so <sighs> in the same way in this, I feel like it didn't matter because like what an interesting concept this is. What a why, like what interesting, lighting choices were made and what you know all of that kind of stuff that would suck an audience in at the time but why do we still hold on to this as the quintessential epic you know like you both talked about how you watched it several times in film school how it's like Mm -hmm. the movie and like this is the thing that we're teaching young filmmakers is really really important right you know well it also and this is something we've talked about on the podcast too but it's a matter of like who is designing these curriculums in film schools? Who is curating the lists, like, you know, like the right. best movies of all time lists that this movie is on, like, every fucking one of? Like, who are like members of the Academy? Like, the, all of that. Right. Who are the critics historically who have, you know, hailed movies like this? It's, again, historically been cishet white men. With, like, curriculum, too, I feel like there is such a, like, copy paste effect where it's like if if prof and and this varies but like if professors were paid you know more for their labor and had time to put together their own curriculum and actually like watch shit and and like build their own stuff i feel like you wouldn't you wouldn't have every single college freshman in a film program watching Double Indemnity. But it's just like, oh, yeah, I guess this is the movie you watch during the noir section. And so every kid being extorted for money by this big e. Anyways, I wish I hadn't gone to college. Waste of time. It's also self-fulfilling, right? Because you were taught that this was really important. Therefore, you're going to teach that it's really important, right? Right. Like, Sure. And and I, I also was thinking about how we often look at film um, and media in general, music, whatever, from time periods as representative of the time. But they're mm-hmm. really not. Like, this is such a good example of that, where, uh, not, sorry, I'm going to temper that a little bit. Sure. Whereas, like, 
film up until very recently was not something you could just fucking go do, right? Like it's not something that you could just like film on your phone and make movies and be like, I have a story to tell and I want to tell it. Mm -hmm. So we're mm -hmm. not getting, we don't have the alternative perspectives of in film media specifically of that time period of all the women who are like, fuck yeah, we're like taking over and like doing all of this stuff, right? We're only getting the impressions of the dominant powerful in the moment, right? right? Right. And I think that I'm just thinking about this now as we're talking, but like how that makes us think that this is what the past was, right? We erase all of the histories of everything else and every other culture and every other like subculture and like groups and that aren't represented in what they were doing. And, and it makes us in a lot of ways not understand the history of activism, not understand the history of mm -hmm. uprising, uh, how change actually happens, because we only have these movies to tell us what it was like. But not only, but you know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, it's it's like movies like this that like are the status quo. They maintain the status quo. And then, yeah, everything else just gets pushed to the side and erased right. and then we don't learn about them unless we're like we take it upon ourselves to like right dig and and find this stuff i think that that's that's a that's an excellent transition into the case that this that double indemnity the book was based on which mm -hmm. i did a little bit of light googling on and found it <laughs> to be pretty interesting. I feel like we actually had like a recent-ish conversation about this when we did Chicago. Because mm. it's kind of dealing with the same era. So, and, and just kind of like how the adaptation, like when men are adapting the ideas of men or adapting the ideas of men, it's just this like fucked up game of telephone that ends up with like, I have to kill someone because she's got a sexy little anklet. And then it's like, well, <laughs> let's trace this back to the source of what was actually happening. Um, mm. So... This is a screenplay by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. There's a bunch of interesting drama that's not relevant to this show that right. I just enjoyed reading about. Yeah. So it's a screenplay by them based on a novel called Double Indemnity by an author named James M. Kane, who wrote that book when he was a reporter writing about a double indemnity case that he attended as a reporter in 1927. And, and so I was like, okay, well, what was that crime? And mm -hmm. was James Kane, I, my, my little hunch was that James Kane made it sexy for no reason and that there was probably something going on. Oh, Jamie, did you have a hunch? Did you have a, do you have a little man living inside you that tells you I took things? Out my, I had a little man <laughs> and I took up my little magnifying glass and said, let's go to wikipedia.org and see what's going on here. <laughs> and so that's what I did. Um, so it's a case of a woman named Ruth Snyder from the late 20s who did do the double indemnity thing and, and killed her husband, Albert Snyder, and went to jail. It's also a case of how brutalizing marginalized people is always going to get a lot of press attention and really exploitative press attention because mm -hmm. she was eventually killed in the electric chair and they published the photo of her being executed uh, mm -hmm. on the front page of the newspaper and it was one of the most famous pictures of the 1920s so Jesus. it was absolutely horrific the reason she committed the crime was not because she was a witch or a sexy little anklet haver um, it was because of and this actually I guess I, I feel darkly vindicated even though i don't know what you know what the writers of the movie thought but 
Right. Her husband was very physically abusive and emotionally abusive. And he abused her because she had a daughter instead of a son, which um, <laughs> gender is a construct and no one has fucking control over that. Uh-huh. He had like pictures of his ex-fiance hanging up around their house and refused to take them down. Like it just sounded like an extremely emotionally and physically volatile, abusive relationship and mm-hmm. so eventually she she double indemnityed and she and she killed the motherfucker and and i just thought that that was such a it's it's frustrating and i think it's interesting that you can take a story that tragic and upsetting and turn it into well of course she was evil and we can't mm-hmm. even take her at her word that her husband was being abusive because she can't be trusted and she's you know like you know what? If it is based on that, I bet you the her husband abusing her is actually real in the movie, but they didn't do any due diligence of making that established, right? Sure, like, yeah. You, you sort of like brushed upon this, but this idea of sensationalizing marginalized grief in bodies and um, and I think that that's a really critical piece of all of this is that like, well, women are dainty and nonviolent and don't do these things and therefore, holy shit, they did this thing. Isn't that like sensational and cool and interesting and, mm-hmm. and newsworthy, mm-hmm. right? And that is also gender essentialism, right? We're talking about um, sure. You know, like all humans are capable of all things, right? We all have the same, right. I mean, not all, but you know what I mean, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. But because patriarchy says that women aren't these things, it's really interesting if we imagine women to be the, all of these, you know, things in terms of violent and murderous and whatever, what have you. Right. Not not to erase the fact that there is already patriarchy dictating that women are manipulative and conniving and all of that. But, right. you know, that it's just another piece of how why I think these these stories get sensationalized. And they still do, right? Sure. They, they still do. Like, we love women as victims. We love, like, brutalized, like, true crime. You know, we're not even going to get into the nightmare that is true crime currently. <laughs> and we love uh, a female villain because it, seem, it still seems like something outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, yeah, I, I think writers justify continuing to like use the tropes because it's like well it's interesting it's it's cinematic it's these are interesting characters it also makes you it makes me wonder at least how much more sexualized and sinister femme fatale characters in film noir would have been during this era if it weren't for the restrictions of the production code like how much like how much worse could it be right yeah i mean but the answer is the women in the 90s like action hero female 90s action heroes Right. I, I've been rewatching all the Terminator movies because we're doing an episode on the Terminator mm. franchise at, mm-hmm. on Feminist Frequency Radio. You can check out my podcast. Yeah, um, and, you know, Terminator 3 had a female Terminator. And, like, there's a scene where she sees a billboard with a woman uh-huh. with larger breasts. So then they, like, pan to her boobs and she makes them bigger so she can, like, get – so she can manipulate the cop into letting her go when she was right. speeding. And mm-hmm. you're just like – one, this is such a product of its time, but that's what this would have been. It would have been yeah. some kind of equivalent to the sexy, you know, hypersexualized using feminine wiles to get what you want, right? That's true. Yeah. Or like basic instinct. Yeah. Where yeah. like Sharon Stone's just like, here's my vagina. Now you'll never, you won't even notice that I'm a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's like, it's interesting to me 
historically that the the femme fatale trope makes that big comeback in the 90s because it's like a similar era of feminist backlash and so it's like that is when this trope pops is when uh women's rights are being actively set back so you know look out for that if a femme fatale starts to pop guess what we're about to lose some rights which we're doing anyways that whole like mid 90s to aughts time period was all the like ironic sexism and ironic racism time period so it was Mm -hmm. part of the backlash of like coming off of the 80s the conservative family values messaging that was being pushed by the conservative establishment. And then you had all of this like, but we're beyond all we're beyond sexism. So now you get those Carl's Jr. commercials where women are like eating Uh the burgers and like cum is running down their faces and all that shit. It all that all comes out of that moment. And that's funny. Remember this? Yeah. You're like, I don't remember this. Like soup. I made a really, really early feminist frequency video. I'm sure it's embarrassing as fuck now about ironic (laughs) sexism and how like that. Like South Park is 100% this. And so it all, that was when we got all of those female action heroes that like, you know, the reboot of Charlie's Angels and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like all of that stuff where you're, it's, they're so cringy and hard to watch. But yeah. it was yeah. women's empowerment, the Spice Girls and all that shit, you know, girl power. Girl right? power. Oh, yeah. We said yeah. girl power feminism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this is, oh, I'm so glad. I was really hoping that this would be the way that this episode would go and we would just get into it. I'm very <laughs> excited. I just feel like this movie has more for us to talk about in terms of the relevance of what this movie means to us today than the like actual content of this movie. Then you versus know? what's happening. Yeah, yeah. it's like, a, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I just want to, the last thing I had about femme fatales, I just like, I don't know. It's it's just such interesting timing, but like how this trope of just like an empowered woman is a dangerous woman. We've had so many conversations about that and how it easily translates to like so many witch characters, even like recent witch characters. It's just like coding a woman as competent and therefore evil and therefore unlovable and therefore like not the protagonist under any circumstances uh-huh. which I don't know I mean I with the femme fatale I mean I would argue that I don't I guess like I it, Walter doesn't feel like the protagonist of this movie to me because I don't care about him <laughs> but maybe that's just personal <laughs> but uh, anyways as far as the the femme fatale trope went to Caitlin you referenced this earlier but it it goes back to ancient times like we mm-hmm. are addicted to uh othering any marginalized person but in in this trope specifically women and the only like growth in the trope in this era of hollywood is that the femme fatales are more active now there used to be like the earliest examples of the femme fatale trope are like women who are just being told they're evil just because so like you have like your helen of troys where they're like she's so hot that we had to have a war about it like they're completely passive on top of it so i'm like i guess i prefer an active femme fatale but even so i mean it's just especially with the context of like the case that trickles down to this movie Mm -hmm. it's just like well clearly it just couldn't be more obvious that there should not be exclusively men telling this story because if you go back to the source it's so much more complicated and 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 Mm -hmm. like having those two or three bits of context completely changes the way you would view that character or that person ruth snyder who was abused 
and exploited uh, right. on on the other end of of being abused to the point where her corpse was in the fucking newspaper. Like that stuff makes me so mad. Just to <sighs> call out, like women, well, pe- women, women who have uh, who have murdered their partners mostly male partners mm-hmm. um in self-defense or because of abusive relationships yeah. or what have you like are rotting in jail like that it's still not mm-hmm. and it's disproportionately black and brown women who uh, are absolutely. incarcerated for it. it's just like it's mm. yes but no but no phyllis was anklet she was evil she's bad she just kills everybody uh, for reasons but i love watching barbara stanwick so it's hard right uh, Anyways, can we talk a little bit about Lola? Yeah, let's talk about Lola. I don't really know what to make of her because we only really we only get to see her in a few brief scenes. We learn that she's dating this guy Nino Zacchetti, who Which is a is good a real character piece name. of work. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> character name. I have no friends. He's an asshole. She's in love with him. We don't learn her age in the movie, but again, according to the screenplay, she's 19. Okay. <sighs> okay. Uh, then, basically, Walter gaslights her and coerces her into a brief relationship, which seems to work because she kind of, like, magically forgets all about her suspicions that her mm. stepmother probably killed her father which she is right about but because she's being manipulated by walter the story has her forget about that right so i mean that to me just this just feels like another just female character in the movie who's not a femme fatale but who is wildly underwritten and who the story has her make some confusing choices and again like i don't want to i'm not blaming her for being manipulated and coerced by walter but a lot of her choices and just kind of the way she was characterized didn't track for me and also because we don't learn anything about her i think i kind of like half stopped paying attention around this point of the movie not intentionally (laughs) just in the way that that happens when you're sitting at home and i totally like I, i don't think you're wrong but i did not read it as him manipulating lola I just read it as like creepy, like getting away from Phyllis and like because all that stuff was revealed about Nino that like he was just moving in that way. But now I'm like, oh, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> he was trying Well, he to- literally says like yeah, in his voiceover. Saying, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. He's like, I couldn't let her tell anyone else about her yeah. suspicions. No, you're totally so right. So I took her to the beach and I took her for some French fries. Like, he's like basically saying right. like I hung out with her to distract her her and then it seems like she might have like developed a crush it's like like it seems like she develops a crush on him or at very least he is presenting himself at, in a position of authority and i feel like he's like not just leveraging his age and his gender he's also leveraging his job over her he's like well i'm an insurance guy so that's mm-hmm. like he's gaslighting her in the grounds of like well i know what i'm talking about you're just a kid like what do you what do you know okay then was nino sleeping with phyllis or was she manipulating him to like to to sort of put a button on this whole murder thing my read was that the, that relationship might have been a bit more like mutually consensual, but because Phyllis is characterized as this like very textbook femme fatale, that she was manipulating 
him and maybe just she was maybe just like setting up a few different fall guys so that she mm. wasn't so culpable but that didn't make sense to me either like her relationship with him I didn't understand why that was happening maybe we missed something and maybe like listeners are like frothing right now they're like it's so obvious <laughs> but like yeah I sort of was like I I just I was like oh I guess by the end of a noir you just have to find out that everybody secretly knew each other the whole time or something like it just felt very like <laughs> genre e i wasn't totally clear on that either yeah but also if this is the blueprint like if this movie is the blueprint right then this movie created some fucked up blueprints <laughs> you know yeah you're like totally. it's kind of a confusing blueprint but i do i mean lola i, I feel like there's she's definitely underwritten and it, it sucks because i feel like the early scenes with lola i was kind of like gently encouraged by because as I said at the beginning, I didn't think there was going to be a second woman in the movie. So I was like <laughs> thrilled that I was like, oh, there's a also that cutting thing where Phyllis was like, yeah, and he just loves his daughter so much. I was like, Phyllis, <laughs> give it a rest. I assumed that they were talking about a child. And so but they were talking about a 19 year old, whatever. But <laughs> I do like that Lola, like when Lola's introduced I liked how her character was introduced. She like pushed back on like her dad was like, who are you going to see? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Like doing kind of the stereotypical controlling father thing. Right. And she like lies to his face very calmly. She's like, I'm this is what I'm doing. I'm going to this intersection and like goodbye. And I was like, oh, I like this character. She's fun. Like she's mm -hmm. it's I feel like it's unusual, especially in 1944 for the first interaction you see with a female character for them to stand up for themselves in some way mm -hmm. but then it's like that slowly and and I also like that she is the person that sees through everything that's going on which makes it like more disappointing and shitty to see her talked out of what she knows is the truth for the rest of the movie and then she disappears right I was rooting for her same justice for Lola um... <laughs> and now she's lost <laughs> all of her parents I don't know. She's a 19 year old orphan. Like, <laughs> but I guess in a way she's also presented as an obstacle for Walter because she starts having suspicions and he's got to deal with it. So mm -hmm. she's undercharacterized and she's presented as an obstacle the way that many women are in movies. Right. Wouldn't it be so cool if she like was the one that solved it? Right. I was like, that would that, have been yeah, awesome. You know, like if they just did this like spin at the end where she came around and was like, let me tell you, I figured it all out. And now I'm going to extort you all for something, you know, I would have loved that. Or I wish that she had showed up and killed Phyllis because it's like she and Phyllis had such a terrible relationship. Phyllis literally killed her mother. They didn't want to play Chinese checkers together. Like it would have been <laughs> cool if Lola came back at the end and like killed them both. And then was like, all right, Zaketti, let's go make you a friend or like whatever. But instead, the only like you know, Bo, you're sort of given on her thing is like, oh, and she'll probably get to date this asshole again because Walter <laughs> tells Zacchetti like, That's hey, call Lola back. She likes you. And I was like, oh, great. What a what a win. I get to date a man with no friends again. Ugh. Also, that whole scene. I was like, 
he's gonna know that you did it like that whole scene i was like he pops out of the bushes and is like go hang out with lola and you're like wow you just outed yourself big time yeah like right not a good move they're so bad at planning walter's not a smart guy he's i also don't understand how what neff does to kill mr dietrichson i think he strangles him but like wouldn't the autopsy show that he was strangled and not fell off of a train so like they're their plan is just like very I don't know it, it doesn't make any sense also Walter's plan to communicate with Phyllis as they're like creating their scheme is for her to go to a shop every day and quote be buying things every day at 11 a.m and if he needs to talk to her that day he'll just like show up when it's convenient for him because women be shopping she has to go be shopping all the time every day and then he'll be like and he might not even show up yeah he might show and also part of this is that he's like we have to go to this shop because we can't be seen talking to each other so his idea is to meet in public where people can see them talking to each other but they're like shopping so they're not really talking to each other you know yeah that's really funny and also i I, like those are really interesting scenes too in terms of the sterileness of it and like the brightness of those shots and like you know like we didn't really talk about any of the visuals in the movie but they're you know Mm. anyways whatever right 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 i mean the the, i feel like that is like a large portion of why these movies are still well regarded is because they look really fucking cool. Like they're they're the shadow play in this and the like shadows. yes, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. My favorite line in the movie was when Keys said, "Papa has it all figured out." I <laughs> jumped in my seat. I was like, "This guy is weird. I like him." Uh, <laughs> Speaking of Keys, the one part of the movie that I was like, "Oh, this." isn't the worst thing I've ever seen is where uh, I think once, maybe even twice Walter tells keys, uh, which is a colleague of his, but they're also like close friends. Walter tells keys that he loves him. And just like a very, like we have a close relationship and it's, we're not led to believe that it's anything more than platonic, but like, I just really enjoyed seeing like a man tell another man that he loves him Mm -hmm. because that's not something you see very often and certainly not in this era where you know men are conditioned to think that like even a platonic affection toward another man is Is, gross or something who knows but i was like wow they were friends and they loved each other too bad that walter's the most boring man alive and (laughs) keys uh participated in the red scare but you know they were friends they were friends Um, The last thing I wanted to mention is something that's very typical of this era, which is the representation of people of color in the movie, which is that they are only seen very fleetingly and always in like service roles, like train porters and, you know, wait staff and and things like that. Um, Well, there was one character I wrote a note being like, there's a character from Inglewood that kind of looked like he was in brown face. And I was like, what the fuck is this? No, I did wonder about that Gorlopis or something Mm -hmm. in that early scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was I was like, oh, this is not good. Yeah, hard to say, but representation of people of color is scarce. Has always been bad, and then as in this era, especially is. uh, I would like to take that on in in a future episode as well. Like we should, yeah, continue to pursue this conversation for sure. Absolutely. Does anyone have anything else they want to talk about regarding double indemnity? No, when are we going to do it? 
Let's do a double indemnity. Ooh, Let's like yeah. have a little heist crew and kill someone's <laughs> shitty husband a good for idea. monies. Mm. <laughs> what are they going to do? Put us in the electric chair and then put it in the newspaper? It wouldn't happen. <laughs> yes. That will be our claim to fame. <laughs> Feminist podcasters do the ultimate. <laughs> Feminist podcasters get the electric chair for thought crimes. <laughs> Feminist more like... Uh. Femme fatalinist. <laughs> oh, nice, wow. nice one. Yep. Thanks. I think wow. I think we're gonna get the electric chair just for that. <laughs> not, not not that we should be joking about how awful fucking um, what's it called when the state murders you? State murder. Uh, oh, capital capital punishment. Yeah, capital punishment. That's good. Uh, <laughs> this movie does pass the Bechdel test, though. Yes, it does. When Lola and Phyllis are talking about how they don't want to play Chinese checkers with each other. Yeah. Lola says, "Do you mind if we don't finish this game? It bores me stiff." And then Phyllis says, "You got something better to do." And th- that Woo-hoo! I think those Feminist are the only win. <laughs> those are the only two. That's the only example of an exchange between two women. And don't worry, they hate each other. I mean, I guess it does. It that conversation is there to establish that they don't like each other, but the text itself is like not narratively meaningful. So to me, it's like a barely pass. It's a barely pass, but I think it's a funny. It's a funny barely pass because it's just a <laughs> right. hostile exchange between the only two women in the movie. Woo-hoo. Yay! As far as our nipple scale, though, on a scale of zero to five nipples, based on how well the movie fares when examining it through an intersectional feminist lens, I'll give it a half nipple for the following reasons: <laughs> that we see a woman have more agency mm-hmm. than a lot of women have been able to have in movies. Of course, that agency is vilified and we are not meant to empathize with this character at all. And instead we are meant to see her as an evil temptress, which is how, unless, you know, there are a few examples of like a subversion of the femme fatale trope that, you know, have happened in more recent films. But especially of this era, there was no nuance. There was no complexity in general to the femme fatale archetype. And um, even though, like we discussed, there have been maybe some attempts to reclaim the archetype. I don't. It's not in the text of this movie, though. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't work for me, especially with the intent of the storytellers and villainizing an empowered and sexually liberated woman. Don't like it. I'll give the movie one half nipple and I'll give it to Lola, who deserved more justice for Lola. Uh, I guess I'll I'll give it one question mark. Uh, I do think that this is like the, the most active female character that you could find in movies at this time unfortunately mm. i i am a little more pro reclaiming and i think that it has been semi successfully reclaimed in more recent neo noir efforts simply by giving a woman who does something bad context and motivation which is like I feel like what is really, really missing here, especially with the context of knowing what the source material is and how it's like Anita was saying, like this, this movie is presenting a reality that we are told existed, but never did. Like no one was ever acting in a void like this, witches are not a thing. But I do appreciate how active 
the villainous woman is throughout. And also, I, Lola, I mean, she has a strong start, and then I feel like she's kind of like neutered by this story, which I found frustrating and unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, like because of the era, it is extremely white and straight and mm-hmm. and and we didn't really talk about this but the the whole idea of like you're kind of told the end at the end that the great tragedy of this story is that it turns out that Phyllis could love after all and you're like who gives a shit like <laughs> it and there's like this last minute production code style like the redemptive power of a love between a man and a woman and blah 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 like it's just i guess i'm bumping it down to a half nipple and i'm giving that (laughs) half nipple to the line papa has it all figured out beautiful anita how about you uh i don't think i can add anything to what y'all said so i'm just gonna piggyback on that but i just um I'm going to give my, if I'm going to give my rating to somebody, my non-existent rating, it's going to be to the line, uh, hope there aren't any pigeons shitting on you while you're sunbathing because I (laughs) can't get over that. Oh, love it. So wait, zero nipples? Is that why you're giving it? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, you, I think the half nipple is a good one. Okay. I, I, I agree with what both of you said. Nice. Well, Anita, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks and for having me. Thank you. Come back anytime. Uh, tell us where people can follow you on social media, plug anything you would like to plug. Yeah, so you can follow me on the social medias at Anita Sarkeesian. And one of the things I do is I run a emotional support hotline for people who make or play games. It's called the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. So if you uh, need a little emotional support and you live in the U.S., you can text us. Um, You can learn more at gameshotline.org. Our agents are trained in understanding like internet culture and gaming culture and online harassment as well so if you're you know even if you don't play games and you need a little bit of help around some of this stuff we're here for you Mm -hmm. so gameshotline.org we're also in the middle of our end of year fundraising campaign for the hotline and everything else that feminist frequency does to try to end abuse in the video game industry so if you want to pitch in a couple bucks to that uh feel free in addition to your patreon support of the bechdel cast right because there's no we all we just share we we gotta share there's no scarcity here so um or or it's all scarce you know one or the other (laughs) right (laughs) um so yeah um, you can learn more at gameshotline.org you can check me out at anita sarkeesian on all the things oh also my podcast feminist frequency radio if you like this you'll like what we do (laughs) yeah hell yeah give that a listen everybody and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast. And speaking of that, Patreon, aka Matreon, you can find that at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast. You get two bonus episodes every month, plus access to all of the previously released bonus episodes, of which there are over 100. So wow. check it out. Look at them go. <laughs> really putting in the time. You better join. And uh, if you desire any, if you have any merch-related needs, we've got you there too. You can go to tpublic.com slash the Bechdel cast and get all of your, oh, it's, it's, guess what's in season right now? Baby Grinch baby t-shirts. Grinch. So there you go. Get your Baby Grinch t-shirts. And I guess now's the time where we shoot each other <laughs> let's shoot each other and kiss no no you you, you put we you push us off a train oh sorry 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 we definitely yeah. push but us. not really we're gonna just pretend yeah <laughs> i mean it's a pretty good mystery right i mean i know we're done talking about it but i'm like that's a pretty good scheme 
I was like, cool, I'm on board with this. Yeah, except that they they execute it badly. They, it but... was, the execution, the idea was good. <laughs> yeah. I maintain the idea was good. The execution, they clearly were ill-equipped. Yeah, for sure. All right, y'all, thanks so much for having me. It's a <laughs> yes. pleasure talking with both of you. The pleasure is all ours. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.